0: george what are we doing here what are we doing here it's red Red fans do your homework hi acton hi hi george we are on apple Podcasts, people explicit content marker checked yes (laughs) Because apparently explicit for Apple means anything your child can't listen to. And it's like, well, that's, like, everything. I mean, unless there's, like, kid podcasts, which I bet there are.
1: That's right. And there's the occasional swear, so. Oh, my God. It's just
0: the topics, the language. Nothing is child-appropriate on this show. That's right.
1: Very inappropriate. On that note. (laughs) On that (laughs) note. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex.
0: (laughs) All the single ladies. (laughs) All the single ladies. (laughs) We will be talking
1: about the sexual revolution, both its aspirations and its unintended consequences, by looking at two books.
0: The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry, contrasted with Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl. Yes. Released in, what, 62? Mm-hmm, I want to say. Yep. But let's start with our first
1: things first. So our question is... What was your experience like learning about the birds and the bees from your parents and in school?
0: I can't believe we're talking about this in public. That's (laughs) why I'm having one. (laughs) Go for it. All right. I'll go first. So
1: the things that I learned about sex in the setting of my home, whether through conversation or books or movies, those were way more helpful to me than anything I learned at school. I mean, my sex ed experiences in public school in the 90s were a combination of like mortifying co-ed situations and decontextualized diagrams and semi-sciencey vocab. So sex ed in school was simultaneously humiliating and boring, which honestly are the last two emotions anyone should ever have about sex. (laughs) True that. So I remember being in fifth grade and they separated the boys and the girls so that we could learn all about periods and that made me feel both gross and embarrassed. Uh, It seemed like such a hassle. I remember being in seventh grade, health class, and this time they kept the boys and the girls together, which seems unfathomably dumb to me, in my opinion, to keep us together at that age, like when you're 13. And hearing the young female teacher talk to us all about boners, and everyone just laughing, thats it gross. so awkward. Yeah, that's, that's wrong. That's the only thing I remember from that class, is hearing her say the word boner in front of everybody. Oh, uh, the um, mistakes of liberalism. <laughs> and I remember in my freshman year of high school, I had to watch a movie in health class about date rape. And compared to the kind of things that I'd seen on TV prior to then, it was relatively explicit in what it showed. I mean, it's probably totally tame compared to everything now. But at the time, it was very disturbing to me. And, you know, they also showed a video to the whole class, guys and girls, about how to perform a self-exam for testicular cancer. <laughs> I, I mean, why do the
0: girls need that? I don't know.
1: So I was just like, you know, head down, eyes closed. I was like, oh, I do not want to see this. I'm sure they also talked to us about contraception, but I don't really remember that. I wasn't really paying attention to that because I knew that I wasn't going to have sex until I was married. And so the whole thing just felt like this embarrassing waste of time. And I found it offensive really because I knew from my family and from my faith that sex was special, that I felt it was sacred. And so having something that like intuitively I felt was so precious, kind of like dragged out in front of a room of awkward co-ed teenagers, it felt like that pearls before swine feeling. And, and it didn't feel appropriate to me, especially with being co-ed. It was tone deaf. So I kind of just suffered through it and tried not to pay attention. But what I learned about sex at home, I think, was just right. Um, my mom gave me this short, illustrated Christian book called How You Got to Be You when mm. I was, like, 9 or 10. I still have it. Like, I've, like, put it in the bathroom for my kids to, like, find whenever they're interested. Clever. <laughs> like, I'm not I'm telling Calculating. Them, I'm like, They'll find it, right? And she read a little bit of it to me, and some of it I read on my own, and it had, it had pictures and diagrams, you know, and it talked about puberty and sexual attraction and marriage and what husbands and wives do to love one another, you know, and where babies come from. But the whole thing, while it was relatively straightforward, it managed to be modest and not disgusting. And I think that's because sex was contextualized within marriage and within what we talked about in episode three the unitive and procreative aspects of sex Mm -hmm. like the joys of sex bring you close to your spouse and they make a family and that's delightful like it just had a really like a sweetness and an innocence and a straightforwardness about it that I really liked And, and the book framed it like and that's how you got here because your parents love each other well, so it made yeah. you feel like, a, like oh, I'm, I'm special. I come from my parents loving each other. That's the that's happy nice. path for that's sure. The, that's yeah. the happy path.
0: It's a great happy path. Right. But that is the happy path. Yeah. And so I think that's it's true. To the extent it's a truthful happy path. Unfortunately, it's just not the only path. Right. But yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah. But I think if you're going to introduce it to kids, why not start with it, yes, the best start case start scenario? Absolutely.
0: Right. I couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. And so it had this feeling of continuity to it, and it presented sex as something. You know, important to look forward to, but don't worry if it feels a little weird to you right now. Like it acknowledged that, right? Because
0: you would weird. have perhaps been asking these questions before you were feeling those urges. Exactly. that drive people to want these things. Exactly, like okay. at nine or
1: ten, you're not. You're feeling.
0: curious about the, what, the how it happens, but you don't. You haven't yeah. quite arrived at the place where you're like, oh, I feel this thing. What is this thing?
1: Exactly. Right. So I di- I didn't have that kind of self awareness yet, and but I, I don't think that book talked about contraception. It wasn't a Catholic book, but they just didn't bring it up. And again, for I think for like right. first intro, it's like that's fine, because <laughs> right. that's a whole other thing. So, so I didn't feel embarrassed learning about sex in that context. I felt private, but I didn't feel ashamed. And so, I now and then I would still ask my mom questions, and she would answer them very succinctly. Like, no extra like information, but accurately. you needed to satisfy. Yes, minimum effective dose. <laughs> like, and if I wanted any more, I'd have to pressure for more, and I, I didn't. I just, like, Right, because you could sense. This? Yeah. That she would just give enough, because she, in a way, like, she didn't want me imagining it a lot, you know, but right, I was sort of right, right. curious, so she wasn't right. trying to, like, feed my imagination, right. but just enough, you know. My parents were very loving and flirtatious with each other, so anything that I did learn about sex, it was kind of drawn into the center of gravity that organized each new bit of knowledge. Like, sex is for cultivating what my parents have it's like just a place
0: compartment, it's it. just a place in the, in a the house called intimacy but there's a bigger part of the house exactly it's just one room that you don't know yes. a lot about but it's one room over there right
1: right and yeah so any little bit that i would g- gather about sex from something i watched or something i read it would go into that category of like oh yeah that's for that sacred private wonderful mm-hmm. room over there that i don't know much about yet it's sort of like a hold that thought, you know, for something good. Mm-hmm. You know, like kind of tuck that away in the way that like you look forward to a present at Christmas, and you're know, like, I don't know what's in it, but I know it's going to be great, and mm-hmm. I can't wait. And it had this anticipatory, but I'm fine to wait kind of delight in it.
0: You must have also assumed you'd get married before you were 30, though. I did. <laughs> we can talk yeah. about that more <laughs> That's later, true. but it that makes would a, make difference. a difference.
1: That would make a difference, for sure, for sure. And as a teenager, I was always really drawn to like romantic stories. And literature and movies you know and like any hints of sex that I might read about or see were typically in a context of love and intimacy and sex was like like you're saying it's like this hidden center of a connection that's private and that like shouldn't be trotted out into the open and displayed but it was like this mysterious beating heart of the man-woman connection that i that I sensed was very beautiful and like and but it was mysterious and it was alluring and it was off limits but that's okay because it's not time yet You know, so it felt all right. And I mentioned that because, just in case listeners might think, you know, oh, that's so, you know, puritanical or prudish or something. But, like, to me it wasn't. As a kid, I was interested in sex. I wasn't ashamed of it. But I had a deep sense as a kid that it's special. And so it should be approached with this sense of privacy and honor. And so in that sense, I think the sex said that I got on my own, and in the context of home, it was erotic without being explicit. Mm. And that it fueled desire without, like, you know, like, shocking me. Right, Yeah. And I, I will admit, you know, true confessions, I borrowed my parents' old 1970s copy of The Joy of Sex. At the time, as a teenager, that felt very transgressive to do that. You know, like, I oh, felt like yeah. I was being
0: sneaky. I was like, oh, you know, but like... Because the- you don't realize, you have no frame of mind to realize that your parents were young because you think your right. parents came into the earth fully formed when you <laughs> popped into it. Right. I mean, that literally is the mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's, That's true. It's it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. And like, in light of all the internet porn that's
1: available today, like now looking back and I'm like, oh, how sweet and safe to learn about those things. Yeah, much safer. Like a grown-up's book for married couples with some pencil drawings. That sounds just about right. With some erotic,
0: classic erotic art, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So, and again, it's like the context was, the context was marriage. At least that was, you know, it fit within a frame of marriage, you know. And so it just, it didn't feel, it didn't feel weird or gross, even though it felt like exciting to think about but i ended up getting married at 20 so after that i learned from experience which is the best way (laughs) but so i did not have to wait very long so i do not know what that would be like if you're looking at like a decade or
0: more i mean i think they're those those two expectations are directly correlate i mean i think we've Uh, talked about this before that it's it's definitely it's not that hard to wait to get married if everyone's getting married by the time they're 20 or 21 or even earlier. I mean, Ferdinand yeah. talks about that period where everybody's getting married at like 18, 19. That's right. You
1: know? You only have a few years of kind of being
0: woo, online right. before you have the fulfillment of what
1: you're thinking about all the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, but our culture definitely delays, and more and
0: more is delaying. Right, and so that creates this Yeah. This, I mean, space. <laughs> it's really. And hard. it's different to be you know, a celibate, to use a not appropriate term, but what's mm-hmm. a better one? Mm-hmm. A celibate teenager than a celibate 25-year-old. I mean, they just have completely different cultural connotations. Yes, very much so. I mean, that, in fact, we're going to talk about spinsterhood later, and that mm-hmm. is really, it occurs to me as we're having this yeah. conversation, that one of the mm. central tenets of spinsterhood was virginity. Yes. And that colored it, right? Yeah. It wasn't just being not married. In fact, it uh-huh. probably wasn't even really, a it was about being mm-hmm. untouched. Right. Because right. that's what... That was the paradigm, right? The uh-huh. the people who got married lost their virginity, and if you didn't get married, it was just assumed that you were still a virgin, right? So right. So that's interesting to think yeah. about, right? Yeah, that's the whole
1: thing. And so i I never actually I wasn't exposed to porn as a kid.
0: Have you ever um, watched any as an adult? No, at
1: I least would, I've never like tried, because because I've always had the sense of like that would, like. Don't don't even start. Yeah. Because no. I just know people fall down the rabbit hole. Oh so, that's I, so not the risk with women. So, the
0: risk is with women, it's just like, oh my god, this is I'm going to physically be like sick. Like you
1: throw up, yeah. Like I mean even just reading about things from what Louise Perry talks about in her book, I'm like
0: mm-hmm. Well, I don't mean no, that just... kind of porn. I mean more classic porn. I would never watch any modern porn, but I don't think porn does a lot for most women. Of course there are exceptions. Uh-huh. But it's, it's not, the risk isn't that you're going to get so into it. The risk is that you're going to be like, oh my God, this is horrible that this is, this is a thing. My favorite philosopher, Roger Scruton, he wrote, in pornography, desire is
1: detached from love and attached to the mute machinery of sex. This is damaging to adults in just the same way that modern sex education is damaging to children. For it undermines the possibility of real erotic love, which comes only when the sexual act is hedged round with prohibitions and offered as a gift and an existential commitment. I feel like that beautifully describes like the contrast between my experience of sex ed at school, which was so disappointing. And then sex ed at home in which sex was always viewed as this gift as this existential commitment. And so the hedges had a really good purpose. And so they never felt cruel. They never felt arbitrary. It was, you know, like what it's the same way that you hedge anything special or breakable or of great value. You know, it's the same, same thing like that for me. So, so I ended up learning what I need to learn without being scarred for life.
0: And that makes me think about how much easier it is to, to put those hedges around it when you grow up in a family where your parents are married, where your two parents are present. Yes. Because it doesn't hold to say sex is this magical, intimate thing if you've never lived with your father, for example, and you've only lived with your mother. Right. It doesn't, le- you can't show that as an example. Right, the story of oh, your parents love each other so much, and right? How you came and here to and be. we it's stay like, together and we have a family and that's right. So it doesn't. So that context is missing. Yeah, and it must be much harder to mm-hmm. explain that. Yeah, right. It right? it kind of shatters the story, and it's so like okay, right. So like, and what if that is story is the story? the story that you used to preserve the innocence until a, yeah. an adult can come into her his or her own realization of what sex is and what it could be. Mhm. Yet without that convenient setting, mm-hmm. it's much harder to convince a child that sex is just one little room in the house of intimacy.
1: Yes, that's a great way to say it.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, how about you? I don't remember having any sex ed in school. Which doesn't really. Which doesn't mean there wasn't any. <laughs> Maybe you conveniently forgot. It? Maybe I mean I've forgotten a lot of things. Like <laughs> I have friends who tell me, "Remember when da 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 da?" I'm like, "I believe you," but no. <laughs> Although I think if something that awkward had happened to me, like talking about boners in a mixed sexed classroom, I think I would remember that. <laughs> that's a no brainer it would seem to me, to never do any any sex ed that's not sex segregated. Yeah. That sounds horrid. <laughs> so my parents had the joy of sex and the sequel, mm. More oh. Joy. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I never read more joy. <laughs> Maybe I need to get more joy and I likewise snuck about to read them although I'm sure my parents would not have cared <laughs> they weren't hidden away they were just in the living room with the rest of the bookshelves okay. with the rest of the bookshelves on the bookshelf with the rest <laughs> of the books and I also learned a thing or two about intimacy from are you ready? sit down you're already <gasps> sitting walking in on my parents Ooh, that's like my nightmare yes it was it was it was as awkward as you could imagine yes yeah it was upsetting mainly because I was embarrassed. But yes. I mean that already tells you something, right? Yeah. Is that you know to be embarrassed. Right. Like I should right? not be. And it wasn't this? like there was it wasn't a pornographic vista. It was just yeah. a like, you know it was an intimate mm-hmm. vista. Let's mm-hmm. let's say that. Did they
1: did one of them or, or did your mom talk to you about it afterwards? Yeah, it, like, no, I discussed. of
0: course burst into tears and my mom like, you know, she they got through my parents yeah. were good parents, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And that's how I learned to knock. <laughs> 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 and I don't. This was pre. I. I mean. I. I obviously must have understood what. I must have had some understanding of the scope, but I wasn't. This wasn't when I was a teenager. This was earlier. I must okay. have been like maybe. I don't even think I was ten. I must have been okay. somewhere in that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere in that sort oh. of like not a total child because I I think a total child wouldn't have Would understood. Be
1: like, what are you doing about Right. But
0: not yeah. a total child, but not but definitely pre adolescent. Yeah. I'm not actually sure that this experience is that uncommon. I don't think it I think it's I mean, that's common. the reason they call it the scene, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when your parents got a lock on the door. <laughs> well, there's that option. There's also the knocking option. Yes. <laughs> we were an unlocked door kind of house. Oh, were you? We were like, you know, I always think that people are <laughs> divided into two Camps as it, when it comes to their houses. Have you ever noticed that certain people close doors when there's no one in the room? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. See, we are the. I have always grown up with the opposite. It's like open doors open policies. doors. Okay. A door is open by default and closed by selection, <laughs> by intention. Than, Interesting. Yeah, anyway, okay. yeah. The informative value of that experience, let's say, outweighed whatever mm. discomfort it induced. Mm-hmm. It it brought home to me one key component of sex: privacy. Yep. Not secrecy, but privacy. Right. So in some ways I think sex ed in school undermines that essential component. I can't imagine learning in a classroom about for instance masturbation. Like that just seems it seems like telling the kids that who who still think there's Santa Claus that there's no Santa Claus because you can't gauge the appropriateness of that information. No. Like when I had questions to which the answer turned out to be masturbation. <laughs> My mother Understood what I was asking And she's like Here read this And she hands me Like Dr. Spock Okay there you go Which covers it Yeah I mean it doesn't Maybe necessarily think That you're giving it To your kid to read But my mother didn't care She knew yeah, I was sure. it. She was like yeah. Read this Read this You'll understand and Right, like, And you can read it In the privacy of your own Exactly room. You take it into your bedroom <laughs> Your <laughs> private bedroom And you read And you're like Oh Okay <laughs> So again Privacy Not secrecy Because I mean you're, You need someone To initiate you Mm -hmm. it's one of those things if you're a parent and you're so terrified of being that person who in some way informs your own child about these things well you gotta just grow up yeah now that there's you know the internet I'm not really sure what function sex ed really serves I mean it's definitely a front in the culture wars now Mm -hmm. and of course it's hopeless because the whole thing is wrapped up in gender woo now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and of course the exposure to porn which is only going to stop when parents stop giving smartphones and private internet access to their, to their children. And again, yeah. this idea of private internet access, right? There's a bit of an oxymoron in there because the heart of this mess that we're in is that we actually don't allow children privacy. We think that we're giving them privacy when they're in the room, but if you give them the internet, you've undone it all because we've got it backwards. The internet, by design, has no concept of privacy. It just doesn't. These kids are growing up without any mental or visual space to form a gradual, age-appropriate notion of their own sexuality. Hmm. I learned about sex led by my own experience of my maturing body. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just completely self-directed. Like, right. you feel it, and you wonder what it is, and then you ask, and then you learn, and then gradually that experience yes. comes to incorporate other people. That makes so much sense. That seems so right. Right. So, it's like you have feelings, you have visual materials and conversations, and in my case, a little, you know, the Oedipal scene. (laughs) But that, again, that was pre sexual awakening for me. And so those become the supplement to the learning process, but not the main source of it. Yeah. I don't even think that this kind of body led individual awakening is even possible in today's Mm -hmm. porn saturated culture. And when I say porn saturated, I mean everything from actual porn, which we know. Like, I think I read something about, like, X percent of Pornhub's users are, like, under 12 or something. No. Yeah. Oh, My first question was, how do they know? But, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. And, anyway, it's, it's, if it's, even if it's, like, only half true, it's still horrible. Mm-hmm. So, like, actual porn or what we might call Hollywood porn, mm-hmm. whether it's really, it's shows that show a lot of, like, casual sex, like Euphoria, which I admit I haven't watched, but I've read reviews about it and I've seen the trailers, or Industry, which I did watch, or a mostly naked Lizzo twerking, or the wet ass pussy video—that you shouldn't watch. No, I can't. I can't do it <laughs> because I can't do it. Oh yeah, like yeah, that is um, <sighs> interesting. <laughs> shall we say? It makes no difference to me if the woman in, if the women in this, that make this what this Hollywood porn are making money from it. Or even enjoying themselves because my problem isn't with them mm. as a liberal i believe they have a right to make that content but i also think as a culture we have the possibility of holding a social mm-hmm. norm by general consensus that this content is not appropriate for minors ever right which means that it can never be on cable Right, we can't be just there
1: uh-huh.
0: right and we a lot of the conservative phrase for this is family friendly but I actually don't really like that language because I don't think that these values have to do with what shape your household is in at all. I think it's really specifically about children. Children are ignorant and they're gullible and this makes them really vulnerable to unvirtuous people who would exploit them. I'm not a mother, but I am over the age of 30 and I think everyone that age is old enough to have intuited through contact with children say, like, children under 10, Mm -hmm. how exploitable people that age are. Oh, yeah. I mean, they 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 just trust you. They do. And that goes double, triple if they have wonderful parents. Yes. Yeah. They think everyone is like their parents, which is kind of the purpose of upbringing in a way. I mean, I thought no one had credit card debt, because my parents were like, credit cards are for convenience. Yeah. Right, we I was like, I was like, I had graduated from college <laughs> before I met someone who was like, "Oh, I have all this debt," and I was like, "Oh, you mean everyone's not like my parents?" <laughs> I was, I had lived in Europe, I had a college degree, and still I was like, "What bubble, right bubble?" Right. So children are like super bubble, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't had that experience of the vulnerability of children, you're you're like there's something wrong with you because I think mm-hmm. it's just obvious mm-hmm. when you meet a young child. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes for not just girls, but boys also. Yes. They're both vulnerable because of their innocence. Yes. And I'm not a pedophile, so I won't know, unless I can't tell you what it feels like to want to abuse a child. I have no insight into that. But having been a child, I can tell you that the first step, the sine qua non of healthy sexual development for a young person is to be protected by the adults in her life from the very few other adults who would abuse her That's or right. him protect them from those predatory adults and in general from an inappropriate premature loss of innocence which is what obviously porn is I mean Billie Eilish has talked about this Oh, yeah, it messes with your brain Mm -hmm. and so part of that protection is having a public culture that is age appropriate for children Mm -hmm. and I really feel like liberals have absolutely lost the plot on this issue even if we got rid of all the trans insanity the permissiveness of our culture when it comes to explicit sexuality be it straight gay or other is frankly out of control. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> it's not healthy for young people to grow yeah. up in this environment. And I think that the generation that the internet has poisoned in their childhood hopefully is not going to let their own children suffer this way. And I think that's a good thing. My, one of my goals is that you and I live to mm. see a post-internet childhood generation. Yeah. We have a smoking age. We have a drinking mm-hmm. age. And there's always, you're never going to catch everyone. Right. There's always going to be people whose parents let them have drinking parties. hmm And, you know, there's always going to be people who are getting some random adult to buy them six at Mm 7-Eleven. But we could do more to make the internet the exception rather than the rule. That's right.
1: Yeah. We could make those guardrails if we had the will to do it.
0: So that was a bit of a tangent, but I'll come back to... I mean, I feel like this whole issue of sex ed comes down to this idea that, like, sex ed is trying to make a sexual culture. Mm. And we're failing, right? This model that we're currently forwarding is damaging. It's broken. And so, yes, the original urge to include sex ed in public school came from the kind of an opposite problem. We've mm-hmm. sort of swung too far in the opposite direction, right? Yes. I think that the state has a legitimate interest in keeping teenage out of wedlock pregnancy low. Yep. It's not good for the mother. It's not good for the child. That's right. And if your parents happen to be the types who would rather just pretend that their kids are gonna do what they say and never have sex and that's enough to say about it. It's not really entirely fair to the kid. It's not. I mean, birth control exists. I think young adults have the right to be taught that it exists, that it is legal, it's available. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in our collective interest as a nation to create women who become mothers when they are ready. You know, not as a result of their innocent ignorance. I'm not against using traditional strategies to make young men behave better. I mean, when my husband was growing up, it was just... Taken for granted that if you behaved improperly with a young woman, her father was going to come for you, <laughs> and not just reputationally, like physically, he was going to beat you. <laughs> he was gonna, you were going to get you were going to get something from, a weapon from somebody. Uh huh. Because that was the yeah. rules. Yeah. If we want women to have better premarital experiences of sexual and non sexual sorts, there needs to be a strong culture of restraint on male young male sexual behavior. Yes. I mean, that just seems obvious. Yeah. Right now, the broader culture seems to have even stopped asking the question. Mm-hmm. Whether women actually enjoy or benefit from the complete abandonment of this kind of culture of sexual honor and yeah. to enforce that honor stigma. Yes. I mean, there's there just doesn't seem to be any awareness of or acknowledgement of the obvious downsides. Right. So, I don't want people to get pregnant in high school because nobody told them there's condoms and contraception. But right. I don't want, there's no need to teach teach fifth graders about masturbation. They'll figure it out on their own. Right. Right here's a great example of how different the age is like I think I was in fourth grade and I can remember being on the playground kids would play games on other kids based on their ignorance yes and so somebody asked me are you a virgin oh I got that question and I didn't know too. what it meant yeah. so of course you want to say no right. because it's probably something horrible we have the same story right yeah right and that's the joke, because then it's like, ah, right, because that kid knows what it means. Uh-huh. Right. and uh-huh. they've just embarrassed So me. this is an age, like, so that's the protective ignorance of innocence. Yeah. That is, to not know what those words mean is healthy at that age. That's right. And yeah, there will be some trolling around it as, but that's part of the gradual, that's how you awaken into that culture, That's right. right? But now you've got like you know kids in elementary school claiming they have this or that sexual identity. It's like it's, like, why it's are you perverse. About sex at all? You should. But it's be like even, but it's thinking about that. It's done because it's part of this social game now. It's totally detached from any de- developmental trajectory that is helpful. Right. Right. And like the image you gave of like oh sex is like
1: like this one beautiful little room in the household of intimacy. Right. It's like. Taking that and like extracting it from the story of that whole house and like looking at it under a microscope in front of everyone and like taking mm-hmm. it apart, you're like this. The, without the context, it does it harms people to learn yeah, about it.
0: It's damaging. Yeah, I mean, young people just don't have the mental capacity to to understand what they're seeing or what they're learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: that's why. I mean, I really feel like the best. Sex ed is really actually not talking about sex explicitly at all. It's building up that that whole household of of intimacy. Of what is intimacy and what are relationships and what is sort of that 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 dance, that juicy dynamic between male and female, sort mm-hmm. of like the gendered dance, mm-hmm. like mm, and the curiosity and the mystery and the the whole story about the romance that, that would result in courtship and that would finally someday be sort of fulfilled in sex. It's like, leave that for the last little bit after everything else is in place. You've got the store, you've got the house built, right? Then you can kind of enter that room. And then I feel like it's, and then it's not traumatic. It's like, oh, it is like opening on Christmas morning. Like,
0: the, right. that was my experience of it. It's like leveling up in a game. It's like you mm. completed the earlier levels. Right. So <laughs> there now you, you go, play the bonus round. Yeah, there you go, the bonus round.
1: <laughs> that's great, <laughs> excellent. So before we dive into you know what we thought about the two books for today, I thought it'd be helpful to you know we can read a brief quote from each of them at the beginning that kind of provides the gist for those who haven't read them or have. Do
0: heard your homework. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but one uh, one final aside. tangent. This one, is going to be
1: a three-hour episode. Yes, you do know
0: that, right?
1: No. Okay. To break it in half. Oh, um, we could do that. We could break it in half. That's actually a brilliant idea. Yeah. I just want to go meta for a moment and say that with this episode, this may be the first time that we've had a fairly deep disagreement about, like, the value and meaning of a text. Yes! <laughs> so, so our responses to sex and the single girl are noticeably different, you know, and I found myself feeling, like, angry and defensive as I read it because I kept sensing that Helen Gurley Brown was being careless and cavalier with something which I hold to be sacred, namely, like, marriage, sex, and the family, and that made it hard for me to be charitable to her. And I believe an aim of this podcast is to treat the authors of all the texts we read charitably and to find the best that there is to find in their perspective. And I'm so grateful that we're doing this podcast together because you were able to supply that charity when I couldn't. And so that is really good. Well that should be there.
0: <laughs> well, you're welcome. And also like this is I feel vindicated by this because it's the first chance where I feel I can actually suss out mm-hmm. like where we agree on the sort of priors uh-huh. but we disagree on maybe the gap between those priors and the cultural expression yes so I feel like uh-huh. I get to be like the good liberal yes that's Which, right. <laughs> even though I've sort of like left that church I'm like oh just, yeah you know for good it's old time's yeah. sake <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: right <laughs> you can defend it yeah and so for those who might be wondering like what is the big deal why was Acton so offended I thought I might offer an example or two to help non-religious folks kind of get the nature of religious sensitivity. I can't wait for that. That sounds awesome. (laughs) So it's the same feeling that a veteran might experience if they saw the flag being dragged in the mud. um, Or the feeling a Native American might have when, like, an oil company wants to run a pipeline through your ancestral land. You know, and they're thinking, oh, this makes perfect sense. You're like, you don't get it. Right. This is untouchable. Yes. This means something to us. Right. Right. And, but to the company, they're like, I don't see it. This looks like ground. <laughs> you know, this is dirt, right? You're like, mm-hmm. this is not just dirt. <laughs> so it's, it's the pain of expecting reverence because you feel reverence is due, but then that expectation isn't met. Hmm. As a Catholic author, Dietrich von Hildebrand, he wrote in his book, Liturgy and Personality, he wrote, reverence is the essential basis for such a perception of values and for a true relationship with the whole realm of values, with what is above and what speaks from above, the absolute, the supernatural, the divine. Reverence is the mother of all virtues, of all religion. I think in our culture, the opposite of reverence is like a shrug. It's casualness. And so as a person who believes that the sacred is an objective reality, like I don't think it's just in my head. Like, right. It's not just a,
0: a way of, inter- it's not an interpretation.
1: No, it's beyond interpret. Like we ha- all have to interpret, but I think there's a real a sacred reality there, which I'm attempting to interpret, you know? And so I organize my life around attuning to and reverencing the sacred. And so I have to learn how to deal with the pain of others not experiencing the world in the same way that I do, not seeing what I see and not honoring what I honor. That means the flip side of religious liberty is this pain,
0: because Mm. others
1: are free to determine their own values, Mm. right? If I have the freedom to worship as, as I see and understand, that also means you do, and you know, Joe Schmo does, and you may honor something completely different from me, and you may be oblivious to or intentionally dishonor the thing that I honor, right? And that is its own kind of pain, but that pain has to be allowed to just stay where it is because we're a liberal society where we have that freedom. The freedom and the pain are the same they're just two sides of the same coin it's the same thing and I also would say in my response to Helen Gurley Brown there's a twinge of like mama bear anger in me too because I think that the degrading sexual culture prevalent today which I think we both agree about is very degrading I think that that is an offspring of earlier attitudes that began to be cavalier about sex the initial uh, the shrug it grows like a snowball mm-hmm. is, Lisa, is my perception. And so, and it has become what it is now. And I see so many young women suffering in this culture, you know, from that. And, and I wish that things were better for their sake. And so some of the sharp edges of mine that might come out here as, as we talk about this, they're related to this struggle that I have and to the spiritual pain that I feel. And I just want to put that out there before we begin, you know, to say that even though you and I have very different perspectives on certain things, we're both aiming at the same thing, which is reality-based living. We both care about reality. And that means that we are holding things in tension. Or, I think a better way to say it, we hold things in friendship.
0: Amen. So, there we go. Well said. (laughs) All right. So, first quote from Sex and the Single Girl. Theoretically, a nice single woman has no sex life. What nonsense. She has a better sex life than most of her married friends. She need never be bored with one man per lifetime. Her choices of partners is endless, and they seek her. They never come to her bed duty bound. Her married friends refer to her pursuers as wolves, but actually many of them turn out to be lambs to be shorn and worn by her. Sex, as we have said, is enjoyed by single women who participate not to please a man, as might have been the case in olden times, but to please themselves. (laughs) She's so spicy. She is like (laughs) she is. She is sui generous. Yes, she really is.
1: Yep. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, Brown in a nutshell, and here's, here's a, a brief quote to introduce the case against the sexual revolution by Louise Perry. The technology shock of the pill led sexual liberals to the hubristic assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function just fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. We need to re-erect the social guardrails that have been torn down, and in order to do that, we have to start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. And, above all, listen to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Listen to your mother. Listen to your mother. <laughs> so, my initial, my initial response to Sex in the Single Girl. You know, last time, our last podcast, we read Betty Friedan. And she was a formidable thinker and a good writer, you know, and she makes a strong case in the feminine mystique. And even though I disagree with Ferdan on a number of things, I can see how insightful she is. Like she was trying to make a real argument intended to elevate women socially, intellectually, and morally. So even if I disagreed with her, there's something there to disagree with. Like she's formidable and, and I and I admire her. But reading Helen Gurley Brown was a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Brown was the editor of Cosmopolitan Magazine for decades and After her,
0: this book was written, after you might add.
1: And and so her book sounds kind of shallow, it's kind of gossipy, breezy, self-help magazine column style. Because of that style, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe you can push back on this, but I don't think Sex and the Single Girl is making an argument. Like, it's not, it's, she's not researching something, she's not making an argument the way that Fredan was. I feel like it wasn't even quite like a book. It's, it's a patchwork of a bunch of different things put together that kind of don't, they don't feel to me like they quite fit together, but I feel like, I feel like she's bullshitting. And I mean that technically. I I don't mean to be. I love
0: this. (laughs) this Tell tell our audience what what a technical definition of bullshit is, because they (laughs) will need to know. Yes. So Harry
1: Frankfurt of Princeton wrote this great essay on the philosophy of bullshit called On Bullshit, (laughs) in which he describes the bullshitter's carelessness about submitting to the constraints which the endeavor to provide an accurate representation of reality imposes on us. So the state of mind of the bullshitter is as a lack of conscientiousness regarding making contact with reality and conforming to reality. So it's not even lying. Because to lie, you have to have some grasp of the truth because you're carefully covering it up or, like, going against it. Mm. But the heart of bullshit is not caring. It's this kind of breezy indifference to reality and to context, which is typically self-serving. Frankfurt writes... It is just this lack of connection to concern with truth, this indifference to how things really are that I regard as the essence of bullshit. And I read that and I thought, that is Helen girly Brown. Kind of. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and perhaps someone might push back and say, well, like, well, Brown was just describing her personal experiences and her opinions. That's right? no excuse, though. And so that, I don't think it's an excuse, you know. But someone might say, well, she's being true to herself. You know, doesn't that count for something? It's her lived reality, right? Oh, boy. She's speaking her truth, right? But Frankfurt touches on this, too. He says, we've replaced correctness with sincerity. You know, with speaking your truth. Oh, he
0: was the head of the curve on oh, that. Oh, yeah. Didn't On bullshit come out in, like, the, was it the early 2000s, late 90s? I'm not sure, actually, okay. because I question. remember I remember ordering and I have like one of the nice little. Oh, do you? Yes. Yeah, oh, in the I South just God. got a
1: PDF online. We'll have to link to it so so you guys can and
0: show notes, can read it. <laughs> but, but
1: Frankfurt says that we only know ourselves in relation to the rest of reality. So this means that being is always being with, and so if we give up on the enterprise of knowing what is the case outside of ourselves, if we could care less about our context, then we've also given up on knowing ourselves because nobody exists in a vacuum. And this means the project of self-absorbed sincerity is bullshit too. So Brown is not off the hook for writing a very sincere book-length self-serving gossip column. <laughs> <if my name. laughs> so that's my first general critique of Brown—that she's bullshitting. And my second broad critique is this: I think she's Machiavellian. I, I just read through *The Prince* by Machiavelli this year for the first time, and. As I was reading him, I, th- I thought, this is like being in the mind of like a, a predator, of a dangerous animal, like a lion or something. Like, if lions could talk, what would they say? Like, how would they plot? You know? <laughs> and like what, what does pure power uninhibited by conscience sound like? And he almost had this, like, shocking innocence to him. It was so devoid of any moral compass or constraint or scruple. It was solely about the pragmatic acquisition of power. And that's why the thought of an animal predator came to mind. It's like if a tiger eats you, has it done something evil, or was it just being a tiger? <laughs> you know, but that's kind of what came to my mind. You know, that's what I was that's what came to my mind as I was reading Machiavelli, and then I had a similar feeling reading *Sex and the Single Girl*. Brown's goal wasn't political power, of course. It was having a good time, having fun, feeling pretty, feeling special. You know, doing the things that make you feel good. And it's a different goal for Machiavelli, but it still had this twinge of like indifference to moral constraints or indifference to the harms that your behavior causes to others. Like a lack of conscience or self-awareness. I think both are shameless. Like that's the word I was looking for. Like Machiavelli was shameless about power and Brown was shameless about sex. So that's my rather harsh take on Brown. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> harsh but not uh, undeservedly harsh. I mean, actually, <laughs> as we've talked we said earlier, I'm totally <laughs> delighted that we have this really different reaction because I agree, totally. There's a super high vapidity bullshit quotient. (laughs) To her, I am so enthused to present, or attempt to present, (laughs) a credible liberal defense of this book. Great, go for it. Um, Andrew Sullivan, in his latest newsletter, talked about the idea of a conservative liberal, (laughs) which I think I might have to admit that I am at this point. But, liberal nonetheless, this will be a liberal defense, so... (laughs) Let's talk about shame. So Brown is shameless, at least in how she openly discusses premarital sex, and she's almost sort of selling it, yeah. right? She's like, this she's is a pitch. great. Yeah. And I watched recently the HBO documentary Being Mary Tyler Moore, and I think that documentary really helped me contextualize not just this book, but also for Dan's book, and I've been spending some of the time since we did that last episode, because she actually is in the beginning, you get to see yes. her, and yeah. you're like, oh, this makes it much more real. Yes. Because there really was this sense of in that time period, women just weren't taking seriously. I mean, the the original Mary Tyler Moore show pitch was to make it about a divorcee, mm-hmm. and the network was like, "No, that's no, not happening." First of all, not appropriate. That's what they thought, even though it was mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. And second of all, they're gonna think you divorced Dick Van Dyke.
1: because that <laughs> was such a great show. That's what I would have thought as a kid
0: watching. Exactly. Like, oh, so, she left Rob Petrie. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we literally had a television culture that didn't want to be honest about mm-hmm. how people lived, especially yeah. women, yeah. because there was this feeling that if we talked honestly about something, we'd be promoting it. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I sort of see Brown's decision to be shameless as more about honesty. Hmm. about a long-standing status quo than it is about pushing sexual mores, like, Hmm. advancing them.
1: Hmm.
0: I don't don't think her sexual mores are all that modern, to be honest. Hmm. And they certainly aren't the free love mores that her book, due to its publication date and what followed she's now, she's retroactively been associated with. That's true. That's very true. I went and I started reading the book and I'm like, I can't believe this crap, right? Because I had the same (laughs) reaction, like, in the introduction, which was, I think my edition was from 2012, and it talked about, you know, who cares if, you know, the relationship ends and you don't get married? You know, the the good, the use has been extracted from it, or or like, the good has been abstracted from it. Yeah. So this very... Technical consumerist kind of crass relationship language. Yes. Yeah. She's totally guilty of that. And yeah. i and I don't mean to let her off the hook on that. But I had to go back and figure out how was this woman, when was this book written? Mm-hmm. She was born in nineteen twenty two, so almost exactly a year after Ferdan. Mm-hmm. And she was nineteen in nineteen forty one when she finished her education and entered the work world. Wow. This is the pre World War II America, right? Mm-hmm. She married at thirty seven in nineteen fifty nine. So, she was having single-woman sex in an era that was very much still bound Mm -hmm. by the traditional mores that protected women from male predation. Mm -hmm. This culture had plenty of room for flirtation, dating, and even sexual affairs, but it still put a lot of expectations on men and women that inspired caution. Mm -hmm. Abortion wasn't legal everywhere. There's no pill. If you got a woman pregnant, there would have been, still been, a social pressure to marry her. The marriage may not have lasted. But there was a sense of propriety about it. Yeah. And I don't even think young people today understand the term illegitimate uh-huh. as relates to a child born out of wedlock. uh uh-huh. I mean, and there's even a stronger term than illegitimate. Illegitimate was the term after they decided that calling those kids bastards was, was too it? much. Right. Right. And yeah. this is, like, one of the things that young people don't understand is that, you know, sex before marriage was probably not as uncommon as we like to think. But if you got pregnant, you got married. Right. Because yeah, it's it's winning. not the yeah. sex while you're married that legitimates the birth of the, the child. It's the acceptance of the father to marry the mother and give the child his name. That's right. So you have to be married before the child is born. That's right. what legitimacy is. Right. So you're claiming it's not that not child about, is mine. Right. Mm-hmm. So Brown was operating in what we might call a kind of lax Protestantism, which was mm-hmm. chaste and proper as far as appearances went, and when push came to shove, like mm-hmm. with marriage... But, of course, people got up to all sorts behind closed doors. And that has nothing zero-nada in common with the culture that she herself then proceeded to build that glorifies sex as fun. Yeah. Sex was fun, Mm. but it makes a difference whether you figure that out on your own, (laughs) in the context of general chastity propriety, than to read about it on the cover of Cosmo when you're 11. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that a close reading of the book really makes clear that most of what's fun about being single really isn't sex at all Hmm. it's the freedom of not being married or even more broadly the relationships between men and women that are possible when the woman isn't married yet Mm -hmm. because what Brown seems to enjoy is meeting men Mm -hmm. interacting with them she likes attention and I think that's a fine thing to admit I think in the context of the time she grew up in it was probably really fun to be single and out in the business world which at that time was largely a world of men Mm mhm so this is going to sound a bit crazy, but when she describes these situations where men are doting on these women they work with, they sound more like troubadours to me than <laughs> creepy colleagues. Because a lot of the stuff they describe, like if you said, oh, this guy I work with keeps buying me gifts, it would be like, HR,
1: sexual yeah. harassment, <laughs> That's right away. What's he
0: expecting from me? Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. This is harassment, yeah. right? But there exists, or existed anyway, a mm-hmm. culture of men loving to love women. Uh-huh. And expressing that love non-sexually, maybe because sexual love isn't an option in whatever the two, whatever context the two find themselves, mm-hmm. but also because it's actually just possible that attraction can be mixed with altruism and affection and a desire to serve.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Obviously, mm-hmm. a woman's mileage in terms of the quality of the men she interacts <laughs> with is going to vary. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to emphasize here is that the culture Brown is talking about having sex in is not a hookup culture. That's right. It's a romantic culture, one that has a very long Western tradition, and worth pointing out, this tradition historically had nothing to do with marriage or sex. Right. I mean, sex obviously precluded in size marriage, Mm -hmm. unless you're a prostitute, but, like, so it was a tradition of romantic love that did not have anything to do with marriage. So this culture is what I want to say pre-sexual revolution sex. Yes. So it's continuing to be charitable to her. What kind of sex is this? Well, it's strategic rather than casual and it has to be, considering the risks. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly at her discretion, rather than as any sort of default expectation, which right. is a key difference right. than what we're going to talk she about later. She has the
1: reins with it.
0: Right. She does. Brown is dating not because she does not want to marry, but because she doesn't want to marry yet. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of sympathy for this attitude, because I'm one of those women who married very late, at 38, to a divorced man. And thus, I benefited from the disappearance, really within my own lifetime, of the spinster. Right. As a girl, I can definitely remember the concept of the spinster, probably from literature I read that was written even earlier. Yeah, yeah. And yet I could also sense as I matured that it really wasn't going to be a problem if I didn't marry before I was 30. Yeah. I wasn't going to be considered automatically too old or ineligible. That's great. And it also didn't mean I had to be a virgin either. <laughs> Which isn't to say that we shouldn't encourage marriage in one's 20s, mm-hmm. especially for women who want children, I'm a big fan of that. But I, like Brown, didn't have a strong interest in starting family. So this cultural shift towards the disappearance of spinsterhood, and sp- specifically spinsterhood as virginity, mm-hmm. was a positive. I resonated with that. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before, how it's really not appropriate to give the same advice to all women. Mm-hmm. Because not all women want the same things. Mm-hmm. And so Brown is definitely not giving advice for women who want to have children. Right. And that's why she may- can make this claim. <laughs> she says... As from erring to have children, you can have babies until you're 40 or older. And if you happen to die before they are 40... I mean, really? At least you haven't lingered into their middle age to be a doddering old boar. <laughs> you also avoid those tiresome years as an unpaid babysitter. I mean, that's that's just silly. It's yeah, bullshit, it like you say. It's, it's not serious. right? And much of the book isn't serious. For that reason, I don't think most of it is actually worth reading. Although, I mean... <laughs> As a period piece. The beginning is interesting. I'll talk Mm -hmm. more about the beginning. But I think it's nonetheless worth pointing out that the values she promotes are not really the ones of the sexual revolution. True. She wants single women to be super frugal as they dress for success, not burn their bras. Mm -hmm. She wants them to surround themselves with men in the real world, not sit around swiping left or right. So yeah, Brown's style, her vividity, the way she emphasizes the transactional in a lot of contexts, all... Terrible. All, like, vomitorious. <laughs> but what she's defending beneath all that is something I think is valuable. A different, slightly rebellious, but sane and rewarding way to spend a decade or more enjoying <laughs> unmarried life in the company, social and perhaps intimate, of men. She's lucky, thanks to the time she mm-hmm. was born, that she got that chance. And it's truly ironic and sad mm. that her preference for the cavalier here would end up becoming the norm. Yeah. And contributing to the erosion of the social mores that allowed her an extended, enjoyable period of what amounts to, best I can tell, courtship. Yeah. I mean, if this is a classic case of do what I did, not what I say. Yeah. Because she's saying, just go have sex, it's fun! Uh Uh-huh. But that's not what she did. Right. She couldn't. That's not what she said. That's just, ugh. Yeah. So that
1: doesn't make it hard to trust her message. You're like, then what parts can I extract from this that are like legit and helpful because i can't just do what you're telling me to do especially not in the culture now because the men are so different from her time but i i think you're doing a beautiful job of being charitable to brown in a way that i wasn't capable of and so i definitely got a a fresher and kinder perspective on her from
0: (laughs) From that's what our our podcast is all about
1: (laughs) there we go and so, you're right, there are there are lovely parts of the book where she talks about, like, relying on your girlfriends, like, when your heart gets broken, you know, she talks about calling your friends and having them come over, and, you know, and they'll take care of you, and, you know, she talks about enjoying the independence of living alone and kind of fashioning your home the way you want to do it, and, like, fashion tips and decorating tips, and she's got all those, and she talks about living thriftily, like, different ways to save money, and, you know, it was fun. I I've resonated with that, and... I also resonate with her enjoyment of men's company. Like, I've had male friends over the years and have some now. And there can be, like, like a kind of a chivalry and a banter that hinges on the gender difference that's delightful, but it's not sexual or erotic at right. all. Right, but, but you it need hinges rules on
0: the bounding difference. that to make that possible. Yes. Like, I didn't really yes. have any true male friendships until I was married.
1: Interesting. Maybe because being married introduced the, the rules? In because it
0: shifted the dynamics enough to everybody knew where they were.
1: Okay, Interesting. Okay, well, I, I think from the way that I was raised, there was this emphasis on, like, other men are like your brothers in Christ, mm. right? And so there, it was this automatic, like, sibling assumption. If they're much older, they're like a father to you, and if they're your age, they're like a brother to you, unless you're in a romantic relationship with that one person, then they're not. But but so it, it emphasized this, Well, you, of course you can enjoy each other's company, you know, and you can connect that way.
0: Um, right, it's but, not the Mike Pence rule where he, like, what, won't go out to dinner with anyone, no. won't have a meal after five with... Or what? What's yeah, that's like, you know what I mean. Right, he about. won't go have
1: dinner with it. Right, but I mean that. I mean that sort of like purity culture yes. is totally a part of an undercurrent in yes in in American Christianity, of course. And I think it it, it grows as a reaction to look, the liberals are shrugging about sex. Quick, we got to batten down the hatches. It's super <laughs> tight, you know, no, like this, this is like super special. But then it also becomes this like, um, what's the word? You know, youth pastors would, like, bill, you know, sex on your wedding night as, like, the most amazing thing. Like, if you just wait for it, it's going to be amazing. It's like sexual prosperity gospel. Like, you got to hold on. You know, hold on. Keep it in your pants. Then it's going to be
0: amazing.
1: And then, you know, then people get married and they're like, oh this isn't quite what I, like, right.
0: this isn't, no, this can not out. Because you need the experience. So you need to, I mean, part of intimacy is repetition.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, I, I, so a lot of, you know, Christians end up getting like disappointed, like, oh, this is harder than I thought, or we're having issues, or it's not working out, you know, but yeah, the purity culture is definitely a reaction to the shrug. But all that to say, like, I can see why male company would be like a really, like, exciting, heady thing for Brown. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fun. I en- I enjoy times when I'm like, you know, I, I'm part of a book club that's, like, all men, except for me. <laughs> and it's super fun to be in the room, to kind of, like, talk like one of the guys. It's very different than being in a room full of women and talking with other women where you will have text and subtext, and subtext is really what matters. <laughs> It's so all subtext, right? Like, the text could be about nothing. It doesn't matter. It's the subtext. But when you're in a room full of men, it's all text. And they're like, there is no
0: subtext. And it's such a relief. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's really fun. It's, so I, It's the other half of the population. I mean, it, to, you I mean, you'd you have to make a very, you have to be a very specific kind of person to choose to live entirely without socialization with the other half. Yes. I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a very narrow mm-hmm. band of people who, who live like that. Mm-hmm. For a reason, I mean, because yeah. we enjoy each other. We do. The, yeah, the, the
1: difference can be really fun. It can be very, very alluring and, and mysterious. And without it having to be, like, sexual. Right. So I, I appreciate it. You helped me see, like, oh, some of that was going on with Brown. And that's great. Yeah. So. And I also want to add, like, I watched that the documentary on Mary Tyler Moore that you recommended. And I love the documentary. It's so it was well great. done. It's very well done, you know. And and I love Mary as like the real human being that she was, you know. I love the character of Mary Richards uh, from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. You know, the single working girl in Minneapolis at the news station. I watched every single episode of that show as a teen, probably mm-hmm. more than once. And she definitely was an inspiration to me. Like, she modeled working woman in a beautiful way for me. And I also watched every single episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show more than once, where Mary played this 1960s housewife named Laura Petrie. And I loved her character there as a wife and a mom. And as a kid, I never saw those two roles of hers as being in competition with each other. I liked both. I I saw the value in both. And they both had an influence on me, like, in a really,
0: really positive way. So I told you this story by text the other day, but I'm Mm going to tell it again here on the podcast Mm -hmm. because I think it's relevant. I went to a retirement celebration of two professors of computer science, one male, one female. Both had served as chairs of the department at one point. Mm. So after the tribute videos and congratulations from colleagues and family in the room, each of these former professors, retiring professors, makes their own speech. And the man gets up and thanks all these people, and he thanks his wife last, mm-hmm. which is a sort of sign of, you know, like, specialness. Like, it's not like he's being mean. But, because for him, it, this, there's a symbolism to it that yeah. I think that is there. A supportive wife is a bonus. A genuine pleasure, no doubt, but a bonus. Yes. The woman, instead, gets up and thanks her husband first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because without a supportive husband, she could not have had such a career at all. Right. Both of these families, by coincidence, had two daughters. And the daughters of the, f- the female former chair spoke about how their mother's career made their childhoods Atypical. Mm. Most mothers don't take their young children to server rooms for faculty <laughs> meetings, but it also made them very proud of her. Mm. And also, she emphasized her thanks to other people, especially long-serving staff, for their service. Mm. And that made me think about Victoria Smith and her complaints about women having to do all or most or more of the service work. Yeah. And here was a woman who had a career and a family and done a lot of service work specifically to attract other women to the field and to keep to progress in the field like get a PhD if they were going to stop at the master's and Mm -hmm. such and she also benefited from the service of a lot of other women in particular Mm -hmm. so equality doesn't mean women somehow magically being relieved of service work I just don't understand this fetish about that it means integrating service work into a career and many women are capable of this I'm not saying it's easy but it's more realistic I think than simply expressing a lot of resentment about women having to do things right. that men get a pass on. I guess I'm at the point where I think that women are socialized different from men because they are different from men. Yeah. And it's necessary. Yeah. I, I don't envision a world where women don't do things that women do. Yeah. We can do them differently, like we can have premarital sex. We don't have to get married at 19. We don't have to be called spinsters yeah. at 30. But, like, there's limits. It's There's reality.
1: Yeah,
0: And reality is... You know, women tend to be drawn to these roles, socialized to do them. It's not that you can't opt out. I mean, if you want to go, you know, have a job and live alone and not have a husband and not have any children, you're free to do that. Go do it. Go do it. Mm -hmm. But this idea that there's this panacea awaiting women when they no longer have to do those things uh, just seems very unrealistic and also just very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It just seems like impoverished. That kind of view of the world. I agree. It seems anti intimate in its own way. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess we're are we ready to turn to Perry now? Let's look at Perry. Okay. Yeah. First so, responses. So, this idea that men and women are different, that is essentially the premise of Perry's book
1: mm-hmm.
0: that socialization is necessary to compensate for the innate biologically based differences between men and women. In her case, she's speaking specifically with regard to sex. In the aggregate, heterosexual men want more sex with a greater variety of women than women do. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a culture where men are put under effective social pressure to be monogamous, or at least serially monogamous, Mm -hmm. you've created a dating and mating culture that serves women by honoring their aggregate preferences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can see this in the world that Brown describes, right? She talks about the girl, and the Mm -hmm. only way a woman can be the girl that is being doted on or favored by some man or other, is a world where men are socialized to treat women that way. Yeah. To go this far and no further. Yes. And I, I want to emphasize that this kind of socialization isn't a kind of brainwashing. Right. Right? It, many men really enjoy monogamy. Yeah. And still more come to accept that its benefits outweigh its downsides. Yeah. And, of course, some men will pursue sexual variety and accept whatever costs them socially. There have always been cads. Mm-hmm. And Brown herself mentions them, calling them Don Juans. Exactly. Right? So this is one side of the story, this pressure men to behave better. Mm -hmm. The other side is that women were also socialized to reward men with their chastity. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the risk of pregnancy reinforced that social expectation. And it was this built-in imbalance that the sexual revolution was against. Women should have the same sexual freedom as men. That's the rallying cry. Mm -hmm. And Perry lays out, I dare say, a pretty solid case about how this notion of balancing sexual freedom was a misunderstanding of what the social mores around male monogamy and female chastity were. Mm -hmm. In essence, this misunderstanding consists, I think, in the fact that these two things are related, even interdependent. Mm -hmm. Because if women don't have to worry about pregnancy, men don't have to either. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, if the goal is equality, then the message you have to tell women is that they should want to have casual sex. It's actually kind of bonkers, really, to base your notion of sexual mores on what makes you more like men, (laughs) rather than on what you feel. Or I'll take Brown over that bullshit any day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She's not confused about women wanting intimacy. That's right. Yeah,
1: that's great point. And it's true. And, and I completely agree with what you just said, that if women don't have to worry about pregnancy, men don't have to worry about it either. And that's like exactly what happened. That's how the change happened. So I, I really liked the case against the sexual revolution, which is probably no surprise to anybody. Um, I liked it for multiple reasons. One, it's very well researched and well written. And it's clear that Perry cares very much about the truth and is trying to make contact with it and two she's making a data-driven case for the ways that the sexual revolution ended up hurting women and seeing that data actually felt kind of gratifying to me because it confirmed that like the traditional religious and moral hedges around sex that i grew up with served an important purpose like they aren't necessarily bigotry or prudery which is how conservatism around sex is commonly framed so that it can be dismissed right but perry is basically saying here's what happened to us in the decades since we removed chesterton's fence around sex How's that working out for you? (laughs) And it's fascinating to hear this approach from a liberal who's not drawing on any explicitly religious perspective. And yet she's saying something that Catholics have been saying since forever, which is that virtue and happiness are actually the same thing. And that unfettered freedom makes most people miserable. So Perry isn't saying, don't be a bad person, as if she were, like, guilt-tripping people. She's saying, especially to women... Don't you want to be happy? And she lays out chapter by chapter a fairly traditional perspective on sex. Not completely, but but reasonably traditional. And it makes it appear as though marriage and chivalry and family life are not the sources of women's oppression and misery, but are actually the best means humans have devised for coping with life's inevitable problems and for managing the irreducible differences between men and women. And a core thesis of her book is that men and women are different both in their bodies and in their motivations, and these differences are perhaps most acute in the area of sexuality. And so we have to face these differences head on and come to terms with them culturally. And as Kathleen Stock uh, says in her foreword to Perry's book, there are plenty of reasons to be wary of contemporary sexual mores that are perfectly secular. Mm. You know, So even though the conclusions in Perry's book resonate with religious mores, you do not need to be religious to reach those conclusions. They can stand on their own which is very interesting. It means that a path to sexual flourishing between men and women is discoverable apart from some sort of supernatural revelation. Like we can find this path by attuning to our embodied nature, particularly to the female nature. Female sexual preferences are influenced by maternal potential, whether or not babies ever actually enter into the picture for a particular individual. And that maternal potential carries with it a certain wisdom about the future, since children are literally the future. And that should take priority if our Species wants to keep existing. You know that old phrase like, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? <laughs> I think that applies to Perry's sexual ethics here. Like, she's saying, if the majority of heterosexual women aren't happy with the current state of our sexual culture, then it's actually failing everybody. And it needs to be reexamined. You know, rather than concluding, oh, most straight women are just prudes having a moral panic. Like, mm. that is not the right, <laughs> that is not the right conclusion to draw. Perry takes her stand with Mary Wollstonecraft when she quotes her at the opening of the book. The little respect paid to chastity in the male world is, I am persuaded, the grand source of many of the physical and moral evils that torment mankind, as well as of the vices and follies that degrade and destroy women. So, like Brown, Perry's concerned about women's happiness. But unlike Brown, you know, Perry is convinced that the only way to secure women's happiness on the sexual front is for women to act in ways that motivate male sexual behavior to bring it into alignment with what allows for most women to flourish. So Brown is encouraging women to align their behavior with that of the average bachelor or cheating married man. You know, she's saying, use him for your own pleasure, because he sure as hell is using you. So Brown and Perry agree that men and women are different, but they're conveying opposing messages about who should change. Like, should men adapt to suit women? You know, should we nudge them from cats into dads? (laughs) Or should women adapt to suit men? Like, should we have the privilege of being cats, too? That's the question, I think.
0: I mean... I feel like the title of, of Brown's book is really misleading, because I'm not really sure that what she says about her relationships and sex in them is that it's it doesn't really seem to be just about sex. That seems, like That whole line seems mm-hmm. like just the necessary extremity to push back against the idea that you couldn't do it and you couldn't say it. Mm-hmm. I think that... I don't really think she's talking about fucking for fun. Really? I really don't. I really think she's talking about, she's talking about, I don't need marriage to condone this relationship. I really think it should have been called the single person who isn't a virgin. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Single not spinster? I don't know. There you go. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Anyway, go on. Okay. I take your point. You're right. Brown isn't just talking about using men for sex. But I think she's still talking about using. That's the thing. She... like, if she's talking about using them for emotional gratification and attention, right? Like, I think she's very straightforward about the pleasure of having a man fall for you, even if you never sleep with him, you know? But yes. she still wants the attention. Yes. And while I grant that's better than using a man for sex, it still strikes me as self absorbed, you know, and not like mature enough to count as real love. And frankly, I'm saying this because it reminds me of myself in middle school. Oh, yeah. And, my, well. like, my attempts at flirting and the delight of getting boys' attention and yes. having admirers, oh, like, when, you, when you're a young woman and you're just coming into... Right, your, your power. You, yeah, there's a sexual power of, like, I can get these guys looking at me, and I, I mean, I'm saying this, they like, can't a, good, help it. a good, modest Christian girl, like, fully clothed, like, it's right. not like I was... It doesn't
0: matter, though, because it's about energy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and boys, and, like, they don't need porn. They have a porn beneath yeah, their eyelids that's right. 24-7. <laughs> that's right. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> So
1: I, th- that was fun. Yeah, I, I liked drawing that kind of attention to myself. Like, but
0: so you're saying she's like an overgrown adolescent? I'm, which I'm saying that is. without saying that. Yes, I mean that's so, actually a fair critique of the Like, it's certainly the language certainly lends itself to that. Even yeah. though she's behaving like an adult, but she her yes. language is all like, yeah.
1: yeah. She could have been more mature than her language portrays. Like, she doesn't do herself any favors with this sort of like, oh, like they're cavalier. The the thing she'll just throw out there. Like right. Maybe she's trying to get a reaction. Uh, maybe it's I part of the she's magazine style. To, she's
0: trying to resist the. Like, you have to say it with complete and utter shamelessness to say it at all.
1: Maybe that's maybe I that's think what it has that's to what be. it is. I think right. if you,
0: okay. the fact. I mean, it's like you couldn't be a divorcee on television. That's why she has to say it like that. Okay. I I all think right. that's what it is. But I well. we weren't there. So, <laughs> so but I think. Like, so
1: I see what she's doing is flirting, and but I believe that flirting is meant to serve a purpose. Like, I think it's it's a part of the whole, right? Like, it should be in service to a more serious romantic trajectory. Like, it's a way of warming up to that, right? Like, it's what you do when you're young. You're, you're practicing, right? And so I just feel uncomfortable seeing Brown extend what I think of as, like, the adolescent warm-ups mm-hmm. into adulthood. Like, really far into adulthood. You know, and that it's possible that's unfair of me.
0: Well, yeah, the alternative is, but... like, I mean... You have a very long and successful marriage, but so many of these young marriages would have failed. Yeah. That's the, that's the other side of that. Right. It's so like, don't get right. married. I mean, like, do you know why Elizabeth Taylor got married so many times? No. Because she wouldn't have sex unless she was married. Really? Yeah.
1: I did that's not true. know that. That's true. True fact.
0: Interesting. Yeah. How many marriages
1: did she have? Like nine? Like six? Nine? Was it Nine?
0: I think she married wow. the same person twice. Okay, I think she did. Okay, show notes. I'll put it in there. I don't know. There's a lot of wow. marriages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why. That's, that's and I found that out. I was like, oh, that's so weird. Why didn't they just have sex? And I was like, oh, because it was then. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that's different. Yeah.
1: So, so to this issue of like of women feeling empowered to act more promiscuously, like maybe in Brown's day, like you pointed out when the overall culture was still kind of by and large Protestant dish, a few women being a little more promiscuous doesn't change the calculus, right? Like, but at scale across decades, it becomes this problem of the commons or like the problem of litter or someone peeing in the pool, right? A little bit's okay, but if everybody acts like you, we are in trouble, So, I mean, this is an old problem. It's categorical imperative, right? He says, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So the question is, does contraception-dependent liberated sex scale well? And I think when promiscuity went from being, like, the exception to the rule, from what only the cool kids did, to something commonplace, like, that's when we can judge the legitimacy of this path. When, mm-hmm. like, everybody and their mother's doing it, it, how does it look?
0: And it didn't go that way in a uniform way. No. It went in a very class-marked yes. way. That's right. It <laughs> goes first, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, and, and this well, is... Well, no, but I mean, like, the, the ill effects...
1: Oh, I mean the other way. Oh, I mean, yes. free
0: love might have been like, associated with liberals, but okay. it's liberals who still got married in the end. That's true. They didn't have the. That's out of right. The, if you look at the out of wedlock yep. birth rates, cor- they correlate right. with income very closely. That's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so uh, this is why my bullshit detector went off reading Brown, because I feel like she was trying to get away with something, and she succeeded in getting away with it because she was an anomaly in that mm-hmm. environment. You know, but women today can't get off scot-free like she did. Because the men have collectively adapted to our new conditions, they aren't troubadours anymore, right? They're porn addicts, and so, yeah, things have changed.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's Helen Gurley Brown with her men. Is they're they're on this they're they're this marginal group of people who are, you know, they're they're engaging in this behavior that isn't very common, mm-hmm. probably. Still, I mean, because right. you know most women are getting married young, yep, and not necessarily because they intend to be married the rest of their lives. I mean, but marriage was one of the ways that you matured. Right. I mean, my parents were both married to other people. In fact, when they met, when they first met, because they Mm -hmm. met through work. So, I mean, it was normal to, my marriage, I think my mother got married in college. Oh, wow. And, like, eloped. Yep. And I think my father got married soon, like, around the same age. It was really common. I mean, it was just, it was normal. I mean... At the same time, you're not living with your parents till you're 26 either. Right. And you're like, you're moving out at 18 and right. you're either going to college on your own or you're getting a job and you're living with roommates or you're getting married. I mean, yeah. it was, it was a, it was an adulting. They didn't have to call it that right? it wasn't a performance. You just it was actual life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's move on to some more quotes. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about sexual disenchantment. So there are a lot of different ways that one can characterize what happened during the sexual revolution. And some of the positive ways would be to call it liberation from old stigmas, liberation from family strictures and structures, you know, and freedom from the risk of unwanted pregnancy. People were celebrating and experimenting with free love and with sexual self-expression. But another way to describe what happened in the sexual revolution is to call it sexual disenchantment. And it's interesting I, I looked up the word disenchantment and merriam webster defined it as being freed from illusion mm. which of course assumes that whatever was previously captivating you is fake right as if you were under a spell and it's good to be free from it right there's the liberation mm. but the cambridge dictionary defined disenchantment as the feeling of no longer believing in the value of something mm. which is totally different you know and this definition assumes the possibility that something actually had a meaning to it but you just don't believe in it anymore Like, you can't perceive it. The change is in you, not necessarily in the world or in that thing. So, you know, one kind of disenchantment is like Dorothy pulling back the curtain to reveal the little man behind the screen in Wizard of Oz, right? And the other disenchantment is more like the result of being traumatized or like, you know, losing a capacity you once had, like like the onset of blindness or something. And I think the sexual disenchantment that happened in the sexual revolution is more like the second kind of disenchantment. Uh, the new technologies, like the pill, like the mainstreaming of pornography, enabled new types of behavior, and those behaviors triggered a change in our perceptions and experiences. So we can no longer believe in the value of sex and, like, the dramatic and symbolic power of it. You know, we ceased to see it as metaphysically charged with meaning, and it lost some of its specialness, its intimacy, its mystery. And sex has become, like you mentioned when you talked about the show Euphoria, anti-intimate. In other words, having no value beyond individual pleasure. And both Brown and Perry refer to this disenchantment. I think Brown epitomizes it with her cavalier attitude, and Perry critiques it.
0: Here's Brown. It seems to me the solution is not to rule out married men, but to keep them as pets. While they are using you to varnish their egos, you use them to add spice to your life. I say them advisedly. One married man is dangerous. A potpourri can be fun. What about the harm you may do to his wife? I'm afraid I have a rather cavalier attitude about wives. The reason is this. A wife, if she is loving and smart, will get her husband back every time. He doesn't really want her not to. He's only playing. She may have played herself on occasion. If she doesn't get him back, it's probably because she's lazy, blind, or doesn't want him. It's a question of taking married men, but not taking them seriously. And not taking them home too often. Don't try to marry one. Use them in a perfectly nice way, just the way they use you. See? It's not about sex. <laughs> it's like, for lobster oh, dinners. I that's right, for lobster She dinners. says don't take them home too often. Too often. There's the too often, right? So I think well, she's she, being coy. She's acknowledging, though, that if you fall in love, and she, she's implying here that sexual intimacy promotes attachment. You know, she doesn't yes, even have to true. say it. That's true. She doesn't true. even have to say it because that's her right. audience knows it's so. That's
1: right. That's a good point. And in that way, she is much more sort of grounded and traditional in her intuition. She's, she's
0: reality-based. Reality-based. On that level. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But still, I, I'm i still mad at her for, like, insinuating herself into, like, someone else's covenant for the sake of your own flirtatious, like, adding spice to my life.
0: Like, yes. that bugs me. <laughs> it's, it's not very virtuous. It's not. I'll it's give you not. that. So...
1: So and and it strikes close to home for me because I I had a dear friend many years ago whose husband was caught in, caught up in like an emotional affair and it was just devastating for her and nearly destroyed their marriage and they had like a young son together and so like I was on the side of of like seeing all the damage that can happen from. From what you know, Brown portrays as like, oh, this is sort of fun, right? And adding spice, a lot. And I'm like, what about the whole context of the whole family? What about that that little boy? Like, what if his father had gone off? And you know, like it's it's just like, don't you see the threads that you're cutting
0: by? You know, like it, it it's just hard for me, right? She's so intent on having this this liberatory experience that she's lost sight of all the implications for virtue and yeah. how violating those virtues causes destruction yeah
1: it's like this collateral damage she's kind of the bull in the china shop is how it it how is how it felt reading her and and again it's not as though she was like trying she doesn't come at all across as like malicious or anything but it is this sort of like yeah the bull in the china shop knocking things over whoops didn't see that there just kind of casual oops destruction you know and i have that that gets me going anyway (laughs) so here's a quote from perry on disenchantment I am critical of any ideology that fails to balance freedom against other values. And I'm also critical of the failure of liberal feminism to interrogate where a desire for a certain type of freedom comes from, too often referring back to a circular logic by which a woman's choices are good because she chooses them. Just like Sex in the City's Charlotte York yelping, I choose my choice, I choose my choice. <laughs> Sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of the liberal privileging of freedom over all other values. Because if you want to be utterly free, you have to take aim at any kind of social restrictions that limit you, particularly the belief that sex has some unique intangible value, some specialness that is difficult to rationalize. From this belief in the specialness of sex comes a host of potentially unwelcome phenomena, including patriarchal religious systems. But when we attempt to disenchant sex and so pretend that this particular act is neither uniquely wonderful nor uniquely violating, then there is another kind of cost. That cost falls disproportionately on women.
0: That's all very well argued. I mean, I, I, I think Perry's book is great, and I feel like the fact that it took this long for someone to say those things is... <laughs> it had to get this bad for her to... Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I've, I've really talked myself into making Brown a useful lens through which to read Perry here. Okay. Definitely the cost of disenchanted sex fall on women, mm-hmm. and many of those costs are specific to the sexual act, like bad sex, rough sex, unplanned childness unplanned childlessness (laughs) but i think brown has convinced me that the real thing missing is actual intimacy Mm -hmm. the kind of dinner dates and cooking a meal if sex without catching feelings is billed as the highest form of personal liberation then young people don't ever learn to do these things and then neither men nor women learn how to create intimacy Mm -hmm. which begins way before the bedroom yes It's all fucking and no wooing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think most women, not to mention most men, are not benefiting from this. Yeah. It makes me really sad that young people, especially young women, are falling for this bullshit. Yep. I mean, there's people who define only wanting to have sex with someone you actually feel romantic feelings for as a kind of sexuality. They call it demisexuality. (sighs) That's like just being a typical heterosexual female. Right. That's just being a woman. That's just being a woman. <laughs> I shudder to think. I, could, I mean, I could have fallen for all this crap. Mm-hmm. I agree with you
1: that, like, Brown does elevate the pleasures of romance right like of dating candlelight dinners courtship like she has high standards for like oh he's got to take out to a nice restaurant <laughs> you know she has high standards and you're right those things have just fallen by the wayside today and that's terrible for both men and women and why is it feminist that those things are gone
0: i it's like this is a baby out with the bathwater yeah, thing for sure right for sure
1: yeah i guess that they're contaminated with the idea of patriarchy like it's condescending or something if he pays for your dinner i don't i don't know Okay. I don't get it. Yeah,
0: I don't yeah. get it. I love chivalry. I think it's great. So chivalry think... is why men love women. They they love doing that.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean not all men maybe, but good, good men. men. <laughs> good men do. We love good men. We love good men.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so a meaningful takeaway from reading Sex with a Single Girl would be her tips for hosting a date, cooking a fancy meal for your date, you know, being hospitable and romantic so that the man in your life feels cared about. Like she even had these little details like, oh, and again, this assumes he's spending the night, but like, oh, like leave nice fresh towels in the bathroom for him and like put in like extra razors and like a little like ashtray for <laughs> when he's smoking. Like, but but the point is like she's attending to these details. Right. Because she cares about his experience. She cares about hosting him and creating an environment like that that is deeply erotic and yes. romantic yes. right and i would say i think that kind of attention is meant for marriage right like that's that's my right, belief right, but right. she's doing a good thing in doing that right that that kind of care and attention to detail is very erotic and loving so yeah so okay points for brown <laughs> so she retains some of the enchantment associated with male female courtship rituals and intimacy
0: right and in fact okay. I mean her book is how to have sex before you get married but get married I mean that maybe that's the title <laughs> say it again how to get how, how to, to have, have sex. sex before you're married but end up getting married I, don't wanna, I mean cause I mean you know she she marries late she marries at yeah. the age I married but like yeah. you know she just didn't want to marry the wrong person yeah that's and she the way very I happy. look at it. She
1: seemed very happy with the man she married. And as they soon as she marry.
0: found the one she wanted to marry, she locked that shit down. If you liked it, she should have put a ring on it. She yeah. did that. She does that. Yes, she does. Put a ring on I it. I mean, it's... She it's... kind of forces him into it. She's like, she's now like, or never, I'm out of here. Right. You better propose. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, like, that's classic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's she's rather traditional. <laughs> she's super traditional. It's just that she there's <laughs> this veneer of, like, liberatory you know vapid consumerist yeah. she talks transactional big game. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's a kind of a bravado and it's tragic that people like as we've said did what she said not what she did
1: mm. yeah Yep. Yeah. yeah so so about Perry's quote on sexual disenchantment She's criticizing the liberal privileging of freedom above all other values. Which means that stigma itself is stigmatized. Like, the one thing you can't do is make someone else feel bad about their sexual desires or which sexual Which is
0: behavior. so bogus. <laughs> I agree. I mean, this like like, people who want to call pedophiles minor attracted persons. Yeah, like, nope. God forbid we stigmatize the pedophile. Yeah. No. What the actual fuck? That's not a liberal value. That's not a liberal value. That's just messed up. Amen. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. like...
1: Yeah. It's gone way too far. Way too far. (sighs) So there's this article by Helen Lewis in The Atlantic called The Problem with Being Cool About Sex, where she writes of her generation of feminists in their 30s. She says, being cool about sex is a mark of our impeccable social liberalism. If two or more adults consent to it, whatever it is, no one else is entitled to an opinion. (laughs) Yet here is the conundrum facing feminist writers. Our enlightened values, less stigma regarding unwed mothers, the acceptance of homosexuality, Greater economic freedom for women, the availability of contraception, and the embrace of consent culture haven't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun.
0: So, sounds good, but doesn't work at all.
1: It doesn't work. Right. It just doesn't. So, the ability to hold an attitude that is, you know, all in caps, cool about sex, requires <laughs> disenchantment. Right? This perspective that sex isn't a big deal. Because... If it's not a big deal, like, if it falls in the category of preferences like Crest or Colgate, you know, or or any other (laughs) consumer choice, right, then then nobody gets to be on the high horse. Nobody can judge you for choosing your choice, right? Uh. Because, like, uh, it's, yeah, it's a consumer choice. But Helen Gurley Brown portrayed her form of sexually active singleness as sort of, maybe not a paradise of guilt-free fun, but certainly guilt-free fun with a heavy side of heartbreak. She acknowledges you get get your heart broken, and but then you patch it up and then you move on. But she was incredibly cool about sex, at least as she wrote it. She was deliberate about sex, deliberate about sex. That maybe that's more true because you're right, there's eh, cool about sex wouldn't put an ashtray in the bathroom for the guy to, you know,
0: I mean, the only thing that that book really departs from in the mores of her time is that she's doing it without the ring on. That's it, everything else is classic. Like if you took all so, the part of the book. Well, but she's doing and said, it with a lot we, of different men without the ring. Well, on. <laughs> she's saying she's doing it with a lot of different men, but how many different men really are there? I mean maybe she's adding some on. I, I mean, don't know. Maybe don't she know. only went to like second base with half the guys. I mean Yeah, that's right, because she's not
1: she 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 alludes to things, but she she's not to you know, and so it's like, oh fill in the blanks. I, I filled in the blanks with she's having like sex with lots of different men. But it sounds like you were sort of filling in the blanks with, like, sounds like she flirted, dated, and maybe fooled around with a lot of different men, but the actual sexual encounters may have been a lot less than she lets on.
0: Well, and I certainly don't think they took place in the context of, like, getting drunk one night at a bar and going home with somebody.
1: No. No. They would have been in the context of, like, a super romantic date where she's, like, picking the records to play. Like, Right.
0: And it wouldn't have been on the first date that she's sleeping with them. Because, like, there's, there's a... Both, it's a plan. She's, she's yeah. coming from this perspective that both sexes understood the stages of intimacy. Like, really, yeah. all she's disagreeing with is, like, when do you get to the fun? The fun? When do you get to the <laughs> sex part? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I don't know. I just yeah. see it as more, like, I would I would wish any young woman that book rather than some of the really, truly disenchanted craft that we yes. read about.
1: Yeah. That's true. That's true.
0: I mean, yeah, it doesn't I agree mean that you. it's either yeah. or great that's but right. it, it means that one is
1: clearly better. Yeah. And I think that maybe partly what accounts for our different perspectives on here is like, I'm starting from a place of like, oh, sex is only for marriage. And then I read Brown and I'm like, oh, you naughty girl. right? And you're, and you're starting from like, this is what our sexual culture is like today. It's crap. And you're like, oh, she's a lot better than that. Right? Like, so we're just coming at it from like, she looks libertine to me, but she looks conservative to you. You know? And well, she so- looks,
0: she looks like traditionalist with the one exception that she's unabashedly not ashamed of premarital sex. Right. which that's right. a prior I have so mm-hmm. for me it feels like right oh okay right you're actually gonna cook him dinner why
1: <laughs> <laughs> so okay so this is interesting that feeds into the next thing I was gonna say because you know if, if what you're saying is like okay Helen Gurley Brown was is somewhat traditional she just scooted the stigma markers over a little bit to be like okay premarital sex is okay right like she's scooting it you know, or or say something like, "Oh, let's let you know, let's let married people use contraception, or let's have gay people get married." Like you sort of have a limited oh, set of. On she that wasn't at all. that. We'll talk about that. Sure, then but we'll like, get there. but I mean, like the liberal idea of like, let's just open up the, you know, we're not opening the floodgates. We're just going to expand. Like, let's include the gay people in marriage. Right. right. Let's include, you know, you're like you're stretching, right? You're sort of like a little more into normativity then the norm gets a little bit bigger, right? Seems right. to be the intention. Like, but, but you're not doing away with normness. <laughs> you're not doing away with boundaries. You're, you're increasing who gets to be in the normal category, right? But I think the most left-leaning positions today are attempting to do away with stigma and heteronormativity altogether. Like, I think that's the meaning of the rainbow bumper sticker. I keep seeing all around town, love is love, which to me translates into nothing is sacred. Like, everything's mm. the same. Nothing is better or worse than anything else. Is what I think that means.
0: Yeah, although I think the, re- the meaning of that in the beginning of that campaign towards decriminalizing and de medicalizing homosexuality was that yeah. it was trying to say, without with, and fit it on a bummer sticker, that homosexuality is not a mental disorder. Right, right, and I but agree, I, agree with the... <laughs> I absolutely agree that it had that effect that you described.
1: Yeah, I mean that's just—it just seems like that, that that sort of snowball phenomenon. Like, oh, good intention for the first for for the first step, and then like, well, it's like you the do twenty do. steps after that become right. become nuts. Yes, and you're like, how? What what is this project? How do you say like we're going to keep that homosexuality is not criminalized and medicalized, but we're not going to, to call pedophiles you know,
0: minor attracted person? R- right, right. Like, how do you <laughs> find
1: that? How do you find that spot? Right. And, and it's people like Perry who are asking, how can we re-enchant sex and learn to honor it as special without relying on a religious narrative to do so? Because the very enchanted perspective on sex that I grew up with and that I still maintain and experience to this day is rooted in what I call an iconic perspective on sex. It's the idea that the sexual union of male and female is an earthly icon of a heavenly reality. So in the first chapter of Genesis, there's... This litany of archetypal pairings within creation, like heaven and earth, Mm -hmm. day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, right? It's very beautiful and poetic, and the crown and pinnacle of that litany is man and woman. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in chapter 2, you've got this image of Eve being taken from the side of Adam, and it's not a rib. It's like ribcage. rib cage. It's like the entire side of his body, oh, it's like his gloss. other half yeah, oh. yeah. it's like um, and so, and she's brought to him and then there's this this beautiful poem about sexual union um, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed and so you've got this like iconic picture of sex as a synecdoche which is I love that word it's a fancy word it's a shorthand that stands in for the whole Mm -hmm. which is marriage and so that microcosm of sex is embedded in this larger macrocosm of marriage and marriage itself is embedded in this in these like macrocosmic archetypal pairings of creation so it's a fractal and fruitful picture of nested parts within holes and then the whole story of the bible is this picture of God as the bridegroom wooing there's the romance wooing and winning his creation as the bride and sex exemplifies the union of heaven and earth Right. So if you tinker with icon, then you're creating a whole new theological meaning. Mm. And that is why sex has very high stakes within Christendom Mm. historically. It's not because Christians are prudes. We love sex. Mm. (laughs) But it's because earth is an icon of heaven. And so that's the symbolism, like the mythos, the meaning, the enchanted vision of sex. And it's heavy. like Right. Like it's weighted with sacredness. And therefore, it stigmatizes everything but a very particular arrangement of mm. one man and one woman in fruitful and faithful union for life. So it's very meaningful, but it's chock full of limits. Like, the meaningfulness and the narrowness are of a piece. Right. Right? And so liberalism wants to reduce the stigmas and to include more people and to allow for more freedom. Right? And I get that. I feel the pull of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel the draw of it very much. And But it appears to me that, like, the cost of that freedom and inclusion is disenchantment like the cost of that destigmatization is a loss of a a degree of sacredness like some of the loss of the mystical drama and i think that each person has to decide for themselves like what kind of trade-offs are worth it but i don't think there is some path of like total freedom and total meaningfulness of like anything goes and sex really matters like i mean maybe you can push back on that but I mean, maybe you can see a path that like balances these two things without damaging either one, but I struggle to see it. I think people like Louise Perry and Mary Harrington are interested in a meaningful, intimate, and virtuous sexual ethic that isn't freighted with all these metaphysical meanings because many people aren't going to be able to believe that today. You know, that's just not an option for a lot of people. And I think, I think a lot of Protestant Christians are aiming for like a middle ground that isn't as limiting as like the Catholic sexual ethic, which is really, really heavily freighted, but it also isn't as loose as rotter culture, Right. And so, even though I'm religious, I'm interested in the secular case for sexual ethics because, like I said earlier, I think virtue and happiness are the same thing. And I'd love for people to be happy. I'd love to see people flourish no matter what they believe. Well, I don't think I can, like,
0: make a counter-argument to Genesis. <laughs> I think that's a, a lot to pull out of my hat, even from my hat. But I, I agree that virtue and happiness are the same thing. I mean, even in a secular Jewish context when I, where I grew up, That connection was entirely clear to me And regularly reinforced Hmm. I'll talk more about this later But I think where this idea meets sexual ethics Is in the realization that unmarried Or even casual sex doesn't have to be immoral But at the same time It can still fall short Dare we say, miss the mark Mm. In terms of producing what makes sex Genuinely worthwhile Intimacy Yes Yeah. Because I agree, that is like a narrow path To navigate how you can still understand that there are unvirtuous and virtuous choices, even if you reserve judgment in some ways of a particular act's morality or immorality. Right. I don't. I don't know how that gets expressed except by modeling. It's because yeah. you realize if your parents are together. Because I mean, I mm-hmm. I knew my father had been married before for a long time. I actually yeah. wasn't. Until, like, one of her best friends, like, spilled the beans to me when I was, like, 14 or something. Really? like, don't you know your, mar- your mother was married before? And I was like, oh, scandalous. <laughs> right? Interesting. Right? Yeah. 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 She didn't like to talk about it. Oh, okay. But I think you get that idea that people are making choices whose significances are very particular and obvious and not casual. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially since I did know the sto- I did know the story about my dad's vasectomy that he got in the context of his first marriage and then had reversed. Yeah. So I think I always sensed that people's choices had ramifications, significant ones. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of maybe the context where I intuited that there was a, that things were significant even if they weren't couched in a narrative. Like, the Bible of the yes. endowed them with that significance.
1: Right. Like, your family is the story.
0: Yes. Rather than the religion being the yes. story. Yeah. My parents went through a little bit of a rough patch when I left for college, and I, which is, I don't think, unusual. Yeah. And my father were like, would, you know, would tell me, he's like, I, I don't do divorce. Because they, they understood that this was like, yes, you just worked it out. They're, they're in it. Because you're in it. Yeah. To win it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a, And that is a real gift they gave you. Yes. To be, they gave you that story of
0: my parents are always together. Right. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But commitment isn't easy. Mm-hmm. But you do it because it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, and that that becomes a double-A story. I mean, it married a man who was married to his first wife for 30-something years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he, you know, would have stayed under other certain conditions. Because the, he had that strong... We're all upbringing. Yeah. But, you know, so it's hard. Like, I think it's some people get luckier than others. Yes. Like, you can have people who are equally virtuous, mm-hmm. but they just, one couple isn't as lucky as another.
1: That's very true. Yeah. Yeah, again, there's so much about life that we can't control, and you don't know what's going to happen to you, and, yeah. All kinds of things can just, like, kick the legs out from a marriage. All kinds of suffering can do that. Right. All kinds of, mm
0: and so yeah, I think one of the things socially driving this path towards liberalization with this sort of de stigmatization of divorce, especially, was just looking at all the unhappiness that those mm-hmm. standards were creating. Right. And I agree that you can take that too far. Right. We've taken it too far. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page right. with that. But I think a lot yeah. of it was like, why are we making ourselves miserable if we see that relaxing these standards or this stigma can actually help. There's no easy way to know when to stop. True. That's right. That's right. But I think divorce in particular. Have you ever watched all those old movies about, like, people having to go to Nevada to, like, get their quick divorce? I mean, yeah. there's, like, a whole genre. <laughs> no. Yeah, before there was no-fault divorce, like when Nevada was the only state that had really? no-fault divorce. Yeah. I mean, those kind of issues cause a lot of suffering. Like, when you had to sort of frame up one of the partners as the adulterer because... There was no no-fault divorce in most oh, states. Like you had to, like, create the yeah. awful conditions yeah. to end You had the... to, like... You look back on that and you're like, yeah, why do we have those laws? That's crazy. But on the other seven, at the same time, people now enter into marriage thinking, oh, well, I'll just get divorced.
1: Right. And something like 50% of marriages end in divorce. You're like, that's not what the, the people who wanted to make the exception to allow suffering people to get out... We're not thinking. Let's move to a culture where half of all marriages end in a divorce. Right. Like that was not what exactly. they meant. But again, it's the snowball thing. It's like, how do you make a tweak? How do you make room for the exception without just like decimating the norm or decimating the rule? You know, like stigmas have force that maintain a center of gravity that keep things together through hardship, right? And and so it's like, how, I don't know. That seems like a super thorny, difficult, worthwhile problem to think about. But how
0: do we do that? I don't know. I don't think there's an answer. Yeah.